Hey, what's going on, Champagne Sharks? This is T. Trevor. How's everyone doing? We have a show I'm looking forward to today, but before we do that, let's do the housekeeping. Um, go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or go to champagnesharks.com. Check out all the links to everywhere we are, including youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks, which is the YouTube. If you go to the YouTube page, it's different material than the podcast and with that you end up getting a whole bunch of live streams that's what we do for stuff that's more topical that you know stuff that happened the same day that's going to be stale by tomorrow or the day after or we live stream along with like presidential debates and things like that so you'll definitely want to check that out but uh yeah go to patreon you get double the episodes you get access to the movie and reading nights and discussions you get access to show notes and the Discord voice and chat server. And it's also going to be the only way to do the call-in show. We're going to do a call-in show on the YouTube, which will allow you to um, call in. And you need to be a member of the Discord. You need to be a patron to do that. Last thing, twitch.tv forward slash champagne sharks for those who prefer Twitch over YouTube. Same material as the YouTube, just for people who prefer to look at it at Twitch. And that's a mouthful, but we're done with that. So let's get to our guest. I will let him introduce himself and what he does and where you can find him. All right, cool. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I don't know what to say. Jason England uh, recently uh, wrote a piece for the Chronicle um, of Higher Education about Jessica Krug um, and the grift of Black Grievance. And I've uh, written uh, also pretty extensively about college admissions, meritocracy. Um, I write essays, I write fiction. I work at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, originally from New York City, I grew up sort of between um, a homeless shelter and a housing project and then went away on scholarship to a private school. And, you know, that expanded my understanding of the world considerably, especially the social structures that, um, that you know, you're always trying to figure out your circumstance when you're younger and why you ended up where you were. And, and going away to school certainly helped me understand some of that um, socioeconomics that I, I wouldn't have known. Otherwise, went on to college, left college, played some basketball, uh, worked in civil rights, went back to college, uh, worked as a dean of admissions, went to grad school at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, floated around, taught at a few universities, had some fellowships, and and right now I'm an assistant professor in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon. So um, you can find me on Twitter. I don't do much tweeting. Uh, I can't. I abhor social media. It's poisonous. <laughs> so um, I, I don't even know my my Twitter handle. Maybe later <laughs> in the show I can remember it. But it's uh, something... I, I could I could pull it up for you. It's uh, okay. <laughs> let's, see, let's see what what is it? Oh, Jason A. England one. That's right. That's right. You can yeah. follow me there. Every once in a while, I might tweet something, but it's rare. Yeah, that's a that's a good policy. I'm I'm the opposite. You know, for p- promoting the show and stuff, I end up being on it all the time, and it is it is bad for you. But um, you know, a lot of people sent me your article, and like four or five different people sent it to me, and they were like, "You got to read this thing. You got to read this thing." And I was like, "Oh wow, you're right." You know, because sometimes people send me stuff, and I'm like, "Okay, I read it. I'm like, why are you sending me this? This is crazy." You know, but this was like right on, right on the money, and like, yeah, like four or five people sent it, and by coincidence, you had like a cousin or something who told you about our podcast and that you should check it out. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, like when I was reading your piece, it was really, really similar to a lot of stuff that um, 
we had been saying on on the show i didn't even bother to make show notes because i felt like there's not even a real need to really take notes on this thing because i uh am very insympatical with you you know but i'll let you describe what the article is about in your own words why was it so easy for jessica krug to fool everyone sure well you know um when this when this happened, and obviously she's not the first, and she's the, the just the latest, or at the time was the latest in a, in a sort of long line of people who are doing this. In fact, as I was writing it, you know, yet another one emerged. Um, but I was intrigued by this idea of a person who was passing as black when she was putting no effort into the performance. Really, you know, like she didn't particularly look black. Um, the accent she was doing was easily discoverable. And and what I was really trying to figure out was one, why she did this and two, how she could have gotten away with it for so long. Um, and Lauren Jackson wrote, I think it's Lauren Jackson is her name. I've, I've read her stuff before, so I apologize if I'm getting her name wrong. I actually think she's quite sharp. She wrote something for the New Yorker sort of unpacking the history um, of, of Jessica Cruz or, you know, whole hustle um, over the years. And she landed on um, the idea of want of blackness um, as, as well as colorism in the academy, you know, helping crew achieve this grift. But I didn't really, it, that, it seemed like an easy out. That, the conclusion seemed formulaic to me. It didn't seem pertinent to the case um, at hand, especially because H.G. Carrillo, a.k.a. Ache, a.k.a. Herman Glenn Carroll, who was a Negro from Detroit, who was pretending to be uh, an Afro-Cuban uh, exile from, from Cuba, um, he was also at George Washington, and it was his, when he died, subsequent outing of his grift that inspired some of Krug's colleagues and associates to investigate her story, you know. And so H.G. was black, right? You can't apply colorism to the hustle he was running. So the, the commonality between them wasn't a want of blackness, you know, although the cases were somewhat similar. The commonality, I thought, was a want of authenticity and a want of grievance, these ultimately aggrieved identities. Um, what you're seeing, are not people who are like performing in blackface, um, that's not what's happening here. But you are seeing people who are trying to um, gild this identity. And you, you see it online um, all the time. And this is what drew me to the story, which is they build an identity in an, on an incontrovertible grievance, right? So you can't challenge someone if they say, hey, my mother was raped by a white man, and that's why I look white. It's in poor taste, especially in this cultural moment, to tell someone, well, can you prove that? You know, it's like, whoa, well, you're triggering my trauma here. H.G. Carrillo's hustle was brilliant as well. He said he was a prodigious pianist, right? But then he hit a certain age after touring the world and playing concert halls, and he decided he hated the piano. It was traumatizing, so he wouldn't play anymore. It's a brilliant hustle. You know, it's like, yo, this guy's a world-class pianist. It's like, yo, you can't ask him to play. You can't. It, it, it'll trigger his trauma. You know, it's. And so I honed in on this as a commonality that what these people were doing, they were wielding grievance um, and, and, and victimization as a way to gain power, to bully others. Um, you know, in Carrillo's case, he seemed to be actually a, of a different disposition. You know, every, by all accounts, people I knew who knew him, he was very kind, calm. Uh, but. There is a credibility that one achieves when you have uh, an identity based on victimhood. And I think that's what you see. It's a, you know, oddly enough, this is like, um, although in, in some liberal circles, this is very common, 
there's not a long line between that and what Trump does. It's the same sort of thing. You know, Trump is always aggrieved. He's always a victim. He's always treated unfairly. And he uses that rationalization to build himself a bully pulpit. And that's what Crew did as well. You know, that was what was striking was that so many of her colleagues and associates said she was she was nasty, that she would say they were not authentic enough, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so season on that um, commonality, I thought this was something that was very true about identity um, in our era and how we began to build it in a culture of social media as well, where you don't have to look the part. You have to be the part, act the part, right? You have to, you have to memorize the script because no one can really see you. You're online for most of the time. Yeah. Um, something I was saying too to people is uh, when I when I started reading about all the people she fooled and everything, I, I was telling people, you know, there's a lot of melanated Jessica Krugs. Like she was just a a non non melanin Jessica Krug, but there's a lot of Jessica Krugs who are as divorced from an authentic black experience as she is. So a that made them ill equipped to kind of test her, and b that kind of made them easy to gaslight. Like one thing that I think was happening is that because she understood and weaponized the hustle herself, I think to a degree, she's like, yeah, I may be, and, and this is like a very entitled white logic, but you know, I think she's probably like, um, same as, same as some white people look at school admissions and stuff and say, Hey, um, you're getting here because of affirmative action. You don't know anymore or, or your grades aren't any better than mine. I should be here. I feel like she was probably like, had a perversely similar mindset when it came to to uh, academia, where she's like, "You don't really know anything more about authentic blackness than I do." Absolutely, uh, you're only here because you're black, uh, yeah. and and that's unfair. That's a type of affirmative action. I think she had that level of entitlement going on, and I think that's also where maybe a lot of her um, aggression and calls of authenticity toward other black academics was coming from she was kind of trolling them in a way or you know challenging and like you know i'm not even black and i can prove that i can gaslight you i can pull this off better than you can that's sure yeah and 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 it, and it kind of worked because she made them really doubt herself and last thing i'll say before i um turn it back to you one theory i had about why it was afro latinas that um were the ones who ended up being best suited to out her is because uh, i always tell people that i noticed uh, Hispanic people, the uh, Latin people, tend to hold on to their culture like pretty, pretty well. I feel like they don't assimilate as quick as a lot of the rest of us do. You know, like I know people who uh, they've been in this country for like two, three generations, but they still have to know Spanish because they have a grandparent or two grandparents mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who still refuses to um, learn learn English. Right? And I've known like um, some Puerto Rican people who graduated from like predominantly white top schools and then when their family comes they're all waving like puerto rican flags in the um in the um audience at at this fancy school and i feel like a lot of black people when they get to that level they don't want to do that they don't want to stand out and look um unclassy and stuff so i feel like when she changed herself to afro-latina that's when it was just a matter of time before she got caught and those were the people that from what i researched you could tell me if i'm wrong but from my research those seem to be the ones she had the most trouble gaslighting although your story about the guy faking cuban exile kind of pokes a hole in that theory it does you know it i I guess it depends on on who you want to be fooled by and what you want to see i mean that's always the thing that stuck with me you know i think about magic acts 
and, and the thing about uh, any magic act is that no matter how quick a magician's sleight of hand is, we know ma- uh, magic doesn't work. It doesn't exist, right? We know that going into a show. And so what a magic act really depends on is the buy-in from the audience, the complicity. Does the audience want to be fooled? In some cases, we do. Now, what I think the difference between HG and um, and and Jessica Krugis is HG was well-liked. Mm. When you like somebody, it biases you. You don't want to bring them down. You don't want to see the holes in their story. Uh, my homeboy is Puerto Rican, and he was telling me that about H.G. Creole. He said, I tried to read his book. It's called something like Losing a My a Spanish or something. It sounds like a parody. Yeah. And he said, he said, you know, I thought it was trash, but everyone was saying it was good. This is not too different from how I feel about a lot of black literature that white people point me to. They're like, oh, you've got to read thing. this. Yep. And I read it, and I'm like, this shit is garbage. Yep. You know, even some even some black people like like some uh, black people who are very into those same circles. They have the same trash taste. You know, they, they'll they'll say, oh, you got to read this. And I'll so, be like, I'm like, what are you getting out of this? Because I'm well, they're, they're trained in boosterism. And I noticed this um, years ago. There was a shift happening. It doesn't pay to criticize. Right. Your 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 Twitter following will not grow if you're critical all the time. Right. You won't be invited into certain rooms, onto certain panels. Um, And with the economy collapsing the way it has and the media world collapsing the way it has, this great deregulation of of intellectual world, the literary world and the world of media, you don't have permanent, secure jobs for people who review things. You have essentially a replication of the gig economy in the world of media and, and literature and and um, and these sort of public intellectual circles, right? So if you're happy that someone's throwing you 400 bucks to review this black dude's book that's supposed to be hot, you better do a good review of it. <laughs> you know, like, you don't want to be critical. You want to be asked to review a book again. You want to hope that you review that book well and that person might ask you to do an interview for GQ or whatever that they're going to be. I mean, it's this sort of um, glad hand in networking culture that's taken over. Yeah, and, and very quick pro quo, very absolutely. scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And it's been that way for a long time. I mean, it's not like, look, let's, let's not, I'm not going to pretend this is unique to black people in any way. I mean, it's a game we've learned. It's a capitalistic game. You know, publishing and literature shifted many years ago. I mean, it was a great crash. Publishing houses, independent ones were closing. Um, you know, people, pu- former publishers were becoming, and editors were becoming agents. You know, they needed to stay afloat. And it came to a point where you would see a book reviewed in the New York Times, and you had to understand the language and the coded language to know if it was a bad book or not. Mostly they were lukewarm reviews, right? No one was just coming out and calling things trash anymore. It shifted. Yeah. There was too much skin in the game, too much money in the game, you know, or it could be an agent went to college with the person writing the review. And it's like, hey, man, you know, ease off a little bit. And um, somebody, might, somebody might get you a job. Because one thing I noticed is that everything is very porous now, like under the umbrella of, um, of public intellectual, you don't really have people who stay in their lane like they, like they used to. And it's not their fault because of the reasons you said. It's like, you kind of have to be flexible and agile because it's a glorified gig economy now oh yeah but, so it's like but one thing i've noticed is that everyone now is like a it's kind of like i call it the influencerization of everything where um influencers tend to not really have a hustle an influencer one day will do an album then they'll be modeling then they'll 
get an acting gig, then they'll announce that they, they have a stand-up set. Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like that's what's happening where you're a personality, you're selling yourself, not sure. a product, and you're an influencer. So it's you're like, a brand. Everyone's become a brand. Everyone's, everyone's become become a brand. So that makes it extra hard to burn bridges. Because before, if you were like a critic, you were Pauline Kael, the New York Times, you could like rail people, but you don't really need access from them. Like all you got to do is go see a movie. You're not trying to screenwrite. Uh, you're not trying to use your critic job to end up screenwriting. You're not trying to get in a room with them to do anything. So she was hated by some very big, very big... Um, filmmakers and that was it it didn't affect her power she didn't need to be liked by them to do to do her her job now that's different now if someone doesn't like you they can actually do things like you know keep you from the career path you want they they won't hire you to do a show or they might even call your paper and get you fired because now newspapers are all weird now newspapers are all owned by people like jeff bezos and stuff who might own the movie company or Everything is access. And when you throw in the fact of black people, black people don't, they, A, they don't have the, the networks and old boy networks and legacy stuff that white people have. And they also don't have the slots. Like, it's always, you know, the one Negro at a time rule for, like, everything, you know? When uh, Tyra Banks and Naomi Campbell came out, it was always about, oh, um, which one's going to be the one, you know? And I feel mm-hmm. like we inherit that mindset that we think, yo, it's a zero-sum game. There's only a couple of slots left. I mean, I'm just saying all this stuff, I think, combines to yo, add to right. the inability to keep any integrity in the black space, especially. Sure, sure. Well, d- you have this great deregulation of the marketplace, right? Where anything goes, you know, a mediocre opinion is just as valued as, and it's unclear where the checks and balances are. We we can see this in the Trump administration, clearly. People always can see it on the right. It's like, yo, he appointed a crony to run the educational department who's anti-education. That deregulates that industry, right? Or he just didn't appoint someone here. Or he stocked the board with people who are financially beholden to him. We can recognize that is a form of industrial deregulation. It's a little harder for people to turn that gaze inward and say, you know what? Those four people who are on that prize jury, not a single one of them is thoughtful, is critical. Um, you know, we, it's harder for us to understand that on all sides, grifters have seen that this is a moment of grand deregulation and that you can get in where you, you, you didn't used to be able to get in. Now, this isn't new. You know, there were always mediocre writers and people who did performative blackness. There was always this spoken word nonsense and these shallow um, critiques of society, these books of essays that really said nothing. The difference was they weren't legitimized. They might sell a lot of copies. You know, um, who's say Toure might end up on MSNBC or whatever and sell copies of his book. But the arts were not giving these people awards. Yeah. And that's what's changed. We've legitimized a lot of mediocre thinkers and writers. And we've also made them these grand experts on everything. It's bizarre. You know, this is why I don't do social media because it's comical. You get on social media and I see this actually from my white peers. I'll see something they have on Instagram or on Twitter and I'll see seven to 10 white people I know have retweeted the same exact talking points from the same five black people. Sometimes not a PhD to be found in that bunch of black people, but certainly if they have one, they just have one. And yet these black people seem to be experts on everything. And so what they've done is they've set up this weird economy of Snapple facts, you know, where it's like they're on the computer all day, just tweeting things out and retweeting things. And if you if you remove this from the space of the computer and online and you think about this in the world and you think about this culture of five people just constantly retweeting their friends, you know, it's like they're just standing there saying, 
what he said, what he said, what he said, what he said, just these trite, like easily um, accessible, facile talking points, you know, video clips, you know, um, the language itself has become a non-language. You know, black people now online, they speak in a way that lets me know they've learned how to be performatively black online. You know, I don't know who needs to hear this, but y'all, I thought he was a whole ass white man, you know, and I'm like, what? You know, I don't remember speaking like this. Yeah. This this isn't how we grew up speaking. And not only that, but everyone is wait, so wait, black. Wait, it's very you, bizarre. Can you, can you back up? Can you back up an sure. example of the person who said I thought you was a whole ass white white man? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, I mean it's just it's just this language that I only see online and that even oh, white I people see what use you mean. as well. You know what, what I mean? What, like what's like overcompensating on Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, you know, I see that all the time too. I'm I'm, I'm going to let you finish your point. I'm, no, I'm no, go ahead. I'm a, okay. What what I was going to say is like there's this thing this woo child um talk that's almost kind of minstrelly and it's even worse when they try to verbalize it. You know, when it um mm-hmm. and and one thing I noticed uh there's certain hot topic fixations that they have and all of it is always kind of banal and lifestyle driven mm-hmm. but they flatten everything and they'll mention it in the same breath with slavery like they'll talk about trauma porn and flatten it so that it's in the same sentence with code switching or not not getting picked for the prom by the white quarterback at your high school and i'm like how can you just say those like you know in the same breath like you have no sense of scale no sense of propriety and i think it's because a lot of these people it's all kind of phony and trendy to them so nothing is actually connected to if you had any real connection to the type of intergenerational trauma or these issues it would just feel crazy to you to even mention it with frivolous stuff and by i also think that same flattening goes into how they actually talk about things so they'll they'll use They'll try to do this high fluting language and then throw in, for lack of a better word, I'll say I'll, I'll use the word ebonics. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. They'll they'll throw in like some hood slang or ebonics, and they're doing it to kind of show, hey, I'm highbrow, but I'm also uh, can get hood, and it's so contrived. And I'm like, who falls for it? But apparently, a lot of people. Yeah, sure. A, a whole lot of people do. Um, you know, uh, it, it'll be like, hey, if you ain't fi- frying your fish in Crisco, you the feds. Right away, I'm like, you know, this person that does not hang out with black people like that, they don't have aunts and uncles like mine. I can tell immediately. You know, if I can tell, let me tell you something a lot of white people can tell, too. And I think I'd circle back to your point. You're right. Jessica Krug probably was spotting this and said, if these people are doing this bullshit, then I can, too. And I keep seeing them. I mean, it's getting worse and worse. Everybody's got some kind of Ivy League trap house, you know, these, these nonsensical, um, you know, faux hood, bougie uh, Professor descriptors Crunk, of Professor this Crunk college. Hood feminist. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Bro, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I mean, I mean I'm going to say the name so that you don't get in trouble because you have to work. I, oh, I don't even know who these people are. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to travel in the circles with them, so I don't want to put you into some Oh, no, I, I don't. I, I'm shielded from this. I, I'm, I'm off on my own. I do my own thing. I mean, look, I've, I've been, you know, I went to prep school. I went to a public university. I left, I dropped out. I went to a liberal arts school, like a very good one called Wesleyan. Um, and then I went to the Iron Writers Workshop. I rarely saw black people similar to me in any of those spaces. Very rarely. I saw a lot of people perform, but, you know, I've always been a lone wolf. I can't be around fraudulence and I'm not going to compromise my family, my culture, my upbringing by sitting in a room and egging on jive. I don't do that. 
Um, and so a, a lot of times, you know, like you mentioned the hood feminists and you said Professor Crone, I legitimately don't know who those people are. So I'm not I'm not ducking and dodging here like, hey, I'm not going to say nothing bad. I'd, I'd have to see who who they are in order to have an opinion. But I kind of am in my own world. I block so much stuff out. But um, but I, but I agree. I think beyond just the um, this sort of um, like adopting slang selectively and, and, and you know, um, and flattening identity. What you see is that they have, they claim an expertise that they don't have experientially whatsoever. It's like when black people talk about hip hop online, it's always embarrassing me. Yeah. Always. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're talking about and no one can call them out. White people can't call them out. It's the reason that we're, we have a, we're at a moment in the culture where like the most popular uh, rapper of the last 15 years is um, a half Jewish uh, Canadian raised in the suburbs who does a black scent and why the, the, the most um, artistically rewarded hip hop product is a Sesame Street musical by a Puerto Rican aristocrat, Lin-Manuel, who, by the way, went to college with me. He's a perfectly nice person. Lin-Manuel's a nice guy. Yep. But that doesn't mean I have to sit there and pretend that Hamilton is some revolutionary um, act of hip-hop. But the Black people who have the platforms to critique these things would have to know and understand the cultural continuity of hip-hop to offer a good critique. I'm, so it's hard for them to know that this is something that should be critiqued. I'm laughing because uh, like one of our first episodes was all about talking about how like horrible Hamilton is. And we've talked about Drake thing, but I was surprised how many people have just kind of thrown in the towel on things. Like I noticed even like um, some black people who should kind of know better to me, you know, because um, they're growing up in with aunts, uncles, parents who actually know uh, the lineage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people just finding it easier to go with the flow. Like it's not like, like I remember when I was growing up, if hip hop got too popular, it actually used to be like a warning sign. You're like, yo, something whack about this. Why is it getting Grammys and stuff? But, sure. n- but now I'll see people in hip hop websites and message boards where they'll be defending rappers, not by saying, yo, this guy has the best lyrics. This guy has got the nicest flow, whatever. They'll be like, uh, who's got the most Grammys? Oh, sure. he's got bitches. He's, he's got sure. uh, the best cars. How many hits does this guy have? And it's like, you guys aren't even talking about the rhymes. I'll, I'll take it one step further. The, no, What rappers talk about the rhymes? No one talks about biting rhymes. No one talks about their flow. It's almost corny, I think, to even... Like, like I was telling someone that I think we're in a culture now of two prevailing trends. There's anti craft which is yeah i don't even care if this is good you know yeah. um i'm not like, a rapper i'm a hustler who knows how to rap exa- exactly mm-hmm. we you actually brag about um um how little you care about the craft it actually becomes like a, like a bragging thing like it's it's corny to care about your craft you know um, even like good people in, in, uh do something which is the second thing which i call anti-effort there's like anti-craft there's anti-effort where it's like um jay-z is like uh he's really good at his craft but even he tries to pretend and I, I, don't, I just do not believe this no matter how many people say it i do not believe he never writes a rhyme or makes it all up on the spot but you know everyone uh claims that he does but even if he does that doesn't mean you shouldn't try either but it, after jay-z did it everyone could try and claim like yeah you know i don't i don't have a notebook a notebook's corny you know i um just flow and some people are both they're anti-craft and anti-effort and all that's cool it's i think if you came out today and you just were sitting there talking about how nice your pen was how much time you spend uh writing rhymes people i think will clown you including the fan base sure well, uh, capitalism won. You know, hip hop used to be extremely subversive, mm-hmm. and you can even you can trace it back to specific songs that are so hilarious. Like I always go back old school. Special Ed had two songs. One was "I Got It Made," the other was "The Mission." "I Got It Made" is him 
bragging about all of his wealth. And it's so over the top that you know it's funny. Exactly. You know? it, I even it, got it's a little island on my very own. I got a frog, a dog with a solid gold bone. And then, you know, the mission. The mission is, this is a mission, not a small time thing. This is all about how he's like beating people up with karate. He had to shoot people. He had to rescue a girl. So both of those songs now are the type of songs that are made in a straightforward manner. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, a total earnest. Yeah, and so and so hip hop lost that subversive quality a long time ago. And I'm not one of those dudes who's like an old curmudgeon where it's like, man, hip hop is dead and all this shit. But you do have to recognize that hip hop got absorbed into the mainstream culture. And this is something that a lot of people didn't grow up with knowing. Like, I know this because I went to school and we had to have special dances called minority dances, where all of the black students from all the prep schools would get together. And that is when you heard R&B and hip hop. White people didn't listen to that shit at all. You were not hearing that at the party. I went to college, I dropped out, I worked in civil rights. I came back to this liberal arts school, walked into a party someone invited me to, and white people were dancing to DMX, and I almost had a heart attack. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I was like, whoa, yeah, white people I, dance to rap now? I experienced that in the nightclubs where it was like, I remember if you went to a white party, uh, they were playing like Billy Joel and stuff and Piano Man and they'd be dancing to like you know um, Van Morrison Brown Eyed Girl all that shit yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very familiar with these parts yeah yeah <laughs> and, and every now and then they would play like a rap song that almost like novelty rap like Young MC mm-hmm. like like Busta Moon absolutely and then by the time like, like Tone Loke's Wild Thing exactly yeah. exactly it's, and they treated it almost like, like a novelty music but by the yep. time of the arts you couldn't have white people at your party and not play them hip hop. Like white people didn't want to be at a party without without hip hop. It was like um, really bizarre. You can go to a black place and go to a white place, and there wasn't really much difference in no. the music being played. Even DJs were able to get booked in both places. Like your favorite DJ at the black party, the next night we would be playing um, the white party in, in Manhattan in Chelsea. Sure, absolutely. Yep, I had friends who were DJing and doing those loud spots. Went to college with a dude named Samu who became a very big time DJ. And he was doing all these different spots, Chelsea, Meatpacking District, Hamptons, all that. Yeah, I mean, same same sets, different crowds. But the thing that happens is uh, eventually the music has to bend to fit the consumer. Yep. And white people were consuming all of it. Not It used to be white people were buying the sensational. Anything with cursing, the NWA, the, you know. That's 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 going to that's going to pop. White people like it. It's extremely subversive. Um, it's the kind of thing that parents would, would throw a fit if they knew they were listening to. But then it was everything. It was the dance music. It was regular music. The, you know, shit you never thought would pop would sell two million records. And so the, the taste of the consumers started influencing, of course, the taste or the, the, the production of the artists and, and who the labels were promoting. But beyond that, beyond the white people, again, bringing it back to black people. Suddenly, the middle class black people who I remember listening to heavy metal and indie rock too, it's not like those people weren't listening to that shit. They were not really fucking with nigga music. <laughs> I remember yeah. that very well. Mm-hmm. Then they were. And they got some of their artists. Like they got people with middle class, black, white aspirational sensibilities. And that's where you get um, you get this sort of cognitive dissonance in the rap where it's both revolutionary and materialistic at all times. Where it's a it's a, it's it's a, a a music that's deep into sloganeering, um, while not saying anything. Yeah, it's got a rebellious pose, but there's no actual content of actual rebellion. It's just like posturing. It's just middle finger. It's just yeah. Grab your. Well, this is what, this is what's so brilliant about black excellence. Black excellence is just one of these fantastic nebulous phrases that means nothing. Exactly. But that allows people to say, hey. 
simply by virtue of me making money, that's a win for all of us. And it was shocking for me how many people, you know, joined in and celebrated that. And 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 for the people who think like we're getting off topic, um, just to make it explicit, this kind of acceptance of like mediocrity and anti-craft and anti-effort, that is what's informing things in the academies, informing things in journalism. Like hip hop is just an example of how far it's trickled down, you know, that, that even the formerly most subversive music or, or rebellious music is buying into these values. So imagine these more mainstream, because I feel like as, as mainstream as hip hop has gotten, in proportion to it, respectable conformist places like, you know, the Academy, like mainstream pop music and all that stuff has in the same proportion gotten even more bland itself so even like i think yesterday's pop is even more subversive than today's hip-hop that's how bad i think it's permeating on everything sure sure and i don't you know i'm not i'm turning this into a bitch fest about hip-hop either i mean look like mainstream white culture is embarrassed exactly like you said those those pop songs the pop songs are insipid death lullabies they say nothing they lull you into a sense of, of complacency and stupidity, you know, remember me through history and all these songs that don't yeah. say anything, don't mean anything. I mean, the pop music is, is you know, this is sort of paint by numbers, um, what gets stuck in your head. It's commercial jingles. I mean, this is like Little Nas X winning a Grammy. Uh, he basically wrote a glorified baby back ribs commercial jingle, you know? And, and I, but I think, you know, to tie everything together, I think what makes Drake seem kind of plausible to people even though to me i'm like this this is this is a this is not a black guy with a white mother this is a white guy with a black father to me like he's he's a he's a jewish kid from toronto you know and the black sense sounds really weird but the thing that makes him kind of um credible and what makes these academics or as they like to call themselves black academics i don't like to use that phrase but i know that sometimes they like to use it um kind of credible is that when you contrast them to a lot of their white peers in the mainstream, like everything's kind of getting more bland and mediocre everywhere. So by contrast, like like when, when you look at what passes for white pop now, compared to that, Drake does sound like he has a lot of swag or a lot of edge <laughs> in, in comparison. There's not even any like melody or anything in, in, sure. in pop anymore. It's like Justin Bieber and stuff. And then you look at um these these white public intellectuals, they're not really like tearing it up either at least these people in box and slate so maybe compared to them these people really do seem like bomb throwers you know well, well yeah and also the, the 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 black identity has become you know something you can industrially replicate it's been like you said it's been flattened and, and part of it is it's been robbed of meaning and made to fit so everyone can understand it in, in terms of social media like a dc black person is very different from a new jersey black person is very different from a new york black person is very different from a north carolina black person. like Baltimore Negroes. I mean, the slang is different. Um, Phraseology is different. The music they listen to is different. The cuisine is different. Online, what you have in order for people to perform this blackness is sort of a stripping out of all of those differences. A one size fits all kind of black. Yeah. The, yeah. What's that terrible language? Like the list is like, is it Esperanto? I can't remember. Like the, the, the yeah, exactly. Language. That's a great way to put you it. Know? Black Esperanto, a, like a universal. Yeah. There's a universal, universal blackness. You can always see it when, when, when people are performing. But also here's the other thing. All of these people are lying. And this is why I, I stay away from it. You know, it's a it's it's comical how much they lie and perform. It's like the Patti LaBelle versus Gladys Knight versus, you know. Now, 
being online encourages performance. Yes. And so this is why you see 70,000 tweets from people. They've got to tweet and retweet all day, every day. They have to stay active. They always have something to say about something. Um, and it's why so many people get tripped up and, 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 and get caught in hypocritical statements. And sometimes it just spouting inanity that somehow people are cosigning and thanking them for. And it's maddening to read. But, you know, I would see these verses. Uh, battles. And I'm an old soul, man. I grew up listening to the impressions. You know, I, I listen to Gladys Knight, for real, the Shirelles. Like, I listen to all of this shit. All of it. Nancy Wilson, Aretha, all that, man. I listen to old 70s and 80s, R&B, Slave, all that. Let me tell you something. I've been around Black people my whole life. Private school, public university, um, private university, bougie, hood. If I throw those jams on, people don't know them. My whole life, mm -hmm. every once in a while, somebody knows Alicia Myers, I want to thank you or something like that. But they don't know them. But then I get online and everyone's losing their mind for Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight and pretending that this is a monumental event. And they're making videos. They're 20 something years old making videos talking about, y'all like people don't know what this is. I'm like, bro, there's no way. Yeah, you, yeah, don't you, don't, you don't even know what this is, much less. You have no idea. You but, don't understand what makes the bars good, bad, or funny. You, you didn't listen to this either, but you put people online and, and get them to perform and, and it's all perform it's fish fries and, and spades and, and they don't know, do like, it oh. they don't do it for each other they do it to uh gain esteem in the eyes of their white friends you it know is, it is it, it always veers on minstrelsy it always does it's you know and they ride a thin uh, a tenuous line they talk about satire it's like sometimes i, I read these people who do any things like y'all i don't know who need to hear this but Comet is what black people use to clean. And when the wash rag becomes an ancestor, I'm like, bro, I don't know what you are talking about anymore. Mm, we and made the a routine has gone too far. We made a we made a bingo. We made a bingo card um for um the other day and we were listening to a podcast and we were just clicking stuff off the bingo card and there was like ancestors, uh mm -hmm. trauma, mm -hmm. um uh, patriarchy well actually I, I, I could pull it up and, and we ran out of space in the bingo card <laughs> it was that yeah. it was that it was that uh predictable but 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 yeah um and and sometimes things change like like so right now colorism is is big on the bingo card like that's uh popped up left and right but uh before that there were other things on the on the bingo card that kind of um faded out like cultural appropriation kind of faded out on the bingo card i feel like colorism is what re replaced it and so sure. and and that lauren michelle jackson piece about um jessica krug i felt like uh lauren michelle jackson i don't really know her writing i've read one or two things from her and i found them unobjectionable i don't think she's an unintelligent person i think one thing she wrote I actually liked a lot but i can't remember what it was but i do recall was it, a, was it her critique of blackish because i remember her writing a pretty good critique of the show blackish um maybe the, the, i remember there was something of hers i liked and the exact thing it was it might have been the review of blackish but you know like i don't think she's an unintelligent person or an untalented person but um uh, i can tell that she probably sometimes phones it in on, on the topics because she's playing the game so she had a book about cultural appropriation a couple and I remember how that was a big topic then. But I bet you, if she didn't get the book out when she got it out, and she had to do it today, she wouldn't do that book. You know, um, she would do a book probably about colorism because that's what people are talking about now. I was what I was noticing is with the influencerization of everything, right? Um, where everyone has another hustle like cardi b is someone on instagram and, and some cardi b songs are catchy like, i'm not trying to be a hater here like it is, it's good for what it is you know like if it came out in the club i could see 
someone um, bopping to it. But it's just kind of funny that she was a social media star. She did little Instagram videos that she does her loving hip hop. Then she goes into, then she goes into actual hip hop and she starts doing uh, songs with real rappers and getting to beefs with real rappers. And then people do it in reverse too. Someone starts off as a rapper ends up doing social media all day like that the guy plies is basically an influence a, a social media sure. star now plies joe yeah, button yeah plies yeah. and joe there's button a, don't even make music anymore and stuff but you know like there is no job except for being being the brand and you can go into everything sure you have someone like chance the rapper who's who's very yeah, bad at both the rapping and the internet stuff he's and yet it's succeeding in spite uh, of I, I, that's what yeah. lil nas x is lil nas x was a was a something called a tweet decker somebody who uh, uh does pr- promotional yeah. tweeting mm-hmm. And then he decided one day, let me try uh, rapping. And he used his viral promotion skills to make the song pop. But he had no commitment um, to um, pop, but, I mean, to uh, to rap. But, but but look at other things in academia. To, to bring it back to the sure. Jessica Crook thing, used to be uh, someone like August Wilson was just a playwright basically his whole life that would be unthinkable now uh if you hit your first play you're supposed to be looking for screenwriting opportunities and maybe you don't even mm-hmm. really like doing plays you just did it because that's my way in the door people become stand-up comedians so they can become actors um actors like someone like martin wayans one day in his 40s decides i'm uh i need to do something to keep my name out there i'm doing a stand-up set he's doing, he's doing his first stand-up set and then it's that's just the kind of um thing we have now and it's in it's infesting um, even academia. But what I started realizing is um, influencers don't do works. Influencers do content. It's a big sure. difference. But what's happening now even is because the lines are getting blurred, people are doing content disguised as works. So someone like... Um, sure. Someone like... What's what's her name? That that She was just... Amanda Seals, like like Amanda Seals was a rapper. Uh, she's an actor. She just did her first stand up special, and then she wrote a book. And I'm like, damn, I don't yeah, even know. Yeah, none she of is. that is a work. Uh, that that special, that comedy special, is not going to be a raw or delirious. Where it's like a work. Yeah, uh, it's just content. It's all interchangeable. It's all content, and, and sure. that book is content. Well, this is this is it's spectacle, man. We're we're in an age of absolute spectacle, and Donald Trump yes. won. Now, there are a lot of things about Donald Trump that are reprehensible. And in many ways, people are right. He is buffoonish and he is uneducated. He's moronic. But this there is an intelligence he possesses. There's, a, there's something he has that I've never had. Right. And it's the same thing that A&Rs have. If you brought me Soldier Boy, crank that Soldier Boy, I'm throwing that yep. shit in the garbage. It's not getting off my desk. A&Rs have their finger on the pulse of American culture and stupidity in a way I don't. I tend to be a little more generous in my estimation of people and their tastes. A&R is cut right through the bullshit and they say, this is what this culture really is and it will respond to it. Trump has that. The reason why A&Rs are like that it's not because they're able to go against their instincts. See, see, like you actually have taste and a creative side and ideas and you probably in your lifetime want to create works. Um, A&Rs are very corporate minded, the very unintellectual people. So they don't have that principled side clashing with anything. Like like you wouldn't have to actually sell out to sign um to sign sure. um Soldier Boy or whatever. Um but if you have no core values, there's nothing to sell out. If All you have, have no to scruples. do is do is buy in. So I don't think it's a um a skill so much as they don't have anything obstructing. Like like they are as uninteresting and uninspired and 
have as bad taste as the people that they um, are marketing to as the, as the public. But but the skill is that they understand that that taste actually wins the day. And Donald Trump understood that spectacle and buffoonery that we had come to a point that we were really ready to embrace it. And I think the yes. response to Donald Trump has proven his point. The re- what you're talking about, which is people creating content. The, you're right. They create content. And because content helps the social media economy and the social media language. Um, That's what feeds it. We need things that inflame our passions. We need things to argue about. We need very accessible, easy, um, you know, fast out talking points to badger each other with. Yeah. You know, and and, and this seems to be what like the quip is the ultimate uh, and the most prized form of communication. And and the instant feedback. I I just read him. I just clapped back at him. And it's, it's not thoughtful. Intellectuals and good writing and good thinking demands patience. It it demands remove. Um, The very thing that social media is against social media is rapid fire response. Instantaneous. Um, So, yeah. So what you're describing is, yeah, degradation and deregulation of of the intellectual field. And you see that in just about all of these mascots and these mascots. Um, I don't know anything about Amanda Seals, but I'm imagining she's like a lot of people that, that, that you know, exists in the intellectual realm and, and also in these other realms of, of rap and comedy who aren't actually any good at and She's an expert doing. at everything. But she's not good at anything, but she's somehow an expert at anything, everything. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing is that she provides something for the audience. In some cases, I think a lot of these mascots, what they do is they appeal to a general impotence um, of white liberals. Now, white liberal impotence is really fascinating to me. That they don't actually do anything. And they think that a political act is simply supporting a black mascot. But for them to support you, you can't be too provocative. You have to keep it kind of corny. And so that's why you have like this endless sharing of Sarah Cooper videos doing lip syncing. You know, one of the most puzzling oh, things yeah. in my lifetime is Sarah Cooper's popularity. This woman with a scrunched face doing these terrible, I mean, the lip sync is not good good. lip sync. No, it's not good lip syncing. But beyond that, she is doing something completely insane, which is trying to parody a man who is openly self-parody. She could never be as funny as Donald Trump in her dreams. Exactly. Donald Trump is hilarious. It's it's shocking. It's it's disturbing. But he's so absurd that you 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 point at him. He's a spectacle. He's a buffoon. Donald Trump is both more intentionally hilarious and more unintentionally hilarious both than she could ever be and she's just like so mediocre but what's interesting is there's a lot of people who kind of like that um and and to give an example there was this guy i used to have this friend she used to like these really dry sitcoms like modern family and stuff that i just found really kind of dry like i'm like i don't see what you can Mm -hmm. Like, she, she would binge watch. I'm like, how can you binge watch this? This is just uh, a very middle-of-the-road sitcom where they took off the laugh track to make it seem like it's it's more intellectual. But, you know, this is a regular three-camera um, sitcom and whatever. But, you know, she 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 loved it and stuff. And then I saw, she starts forwarding me YouTube videos. And one of them was this clip. I mean, and this is a old, this is a while ago. This was in the 2000s or whatever. She sent me this clip. And it was Michael Cera making fun the actor from Arrested Development, making fun of this mm-hmm. guy. The video itself went viral. This guy was walking around mm-hmm. talking about his day and how he works out and all the things he does. And he's just clueless as to how cringe he is, right? And it's mm-hmm. a pretty funny video. And then Michael Cera just acts out the whole thing. And, and you know what it's like? It's like Sharknado. People who like Sharknado. Like, I don't know how you can like something as 
trying to be a B-movie on purpose or Snakes on the Plane on purpose. Like, the funny thing about mm-hmm. Dolomite mm-hmm. is that he's trying to do a good movie, you know? And it yeah. came out however it came out. But this thing where you're just trying to ape something that's already already bad, but you, you have the money and the skill and whatever to do or the supposed intelligence to do better. It's just... And then... But the audience is liking it. I think there's a complicity with, with the audience. Uh, uh, the is. audience is more corporate corporatized uh, in its own way it, itself. And I think that gets kind of left out a lot about the complicity, the audience. Well, but the audience is also cowardly. Um, they don't want to do anything that challenges it. The, the audience is terrified. There's some deep truths about the audience that are difficult to get to. But I'll, I'll give an example. After Trump was elected, I ended up at, at a party that uh, a professor threw. I was in Iowa. An English professor threw a party. There were a whole bunch of other professors there. And the theme was that we were sort of going to dance the trauma away. It's not the kind of party I normally would go to. I ended up there because I was at a bar. Two people were like, hey, we're heading over there. You should come with us. I said, cool. There were some fascinating things there. One, it wasn't really settling in for these people just how much trouble we were in. And two, this is a really nice fucking house. And I was like, yo, how does this dude have this house on a mm. professor's salary? I don't know what people think about professors, but uh, unless they're in the sciences, pulling in big grants and shit like that, you really don't make a lot of money, you know? And so what struck me was these were not allies the way they were presenting themselves to be. They had too much to lose. There's only so much they're willing to rock the status quo because they don't want to give up their house, their car, the private school their daughter goes to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, their their coffee shop where they get their latte and all that bullshit. And so when they embrace things that are subversive, they like them to appear to be subversive, but not to challenge anyone too much. This is where someone like Sarah Cooper comes in. You know, it's not, they can access it, they can mock the president and it does nothing, you know? And, and, And that sort of taste is very strange to me. And again, it's one thing for it to exist. Bad shit has existed forever. The musical Cats existed. I'm not against, and I, let me make this clear, I don't care if Lin-Manuel Miranda makes $500 billion off Hamilton. That's about the public marketplace, you know? I don't care if Sarah Cooper has 55 comedy specials of her absolutely talentless, terrible comedy. That's fine, too. That's the marketplace. If the marketplace is that lame, then let it be. But when the Nation and the New York Times dedicate profiles to her genius... You know, when people start writing about Hamilton as um, some sort of subversive artistic act, um, historical hip hop, and we've now jumped from the marketplace to these sort of like arbiters of intellectual and artistic greatness following the lamest marketplace and that's when everything crumbles uh wagging the dog but the corporatization has infected everything and i'll give you i'll give you an example to use the um academy like um what is nyu now nyu is you can use it for anything, right? Um, and for people who've heard me use this example before, you know, I'm 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 sorry, but every episode is somebody's first, and sometimes even if you said something before, it's just the best thing that applies. But uh, I, I like to give the example of something like comic books or record record companies or um, music companies. Before Def Jam was just its own hip hop thing. Eventually, Columbia bought that, right? So before Def Jam had to make money on its own, had to live or die by its profits. You know, it couldn't just be a promotional wing for like um, mediocrity or a lost leader. 
for something else. It had to live and die by its profits. The the movie studio had to live and die by its profits and its products. And it created a different type of person in charge of the thing. Like the buck stopped with him. He wasn't a middle manager. So like when you hear stories about the old studio chiefs, yeah, there were bean counters. They were people who cared about the money, but they had a kind of creative side to them too, or interest in the best product or an interest in creating a legacy or a work because they weren't just a middle manager. They were the owner, the creator. They had real life experience, didn't come from management school. And the same way uh, if their dad was a furrier or a tailor in the old country and wanted to be have the best shop, they wanted to have the best company. It's their name on it. They created it. Their, their kids, they want to be proud of it. Uh, same with like, you know, the original like Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons um, Def Jam before Columbia bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, comic books, like DC used to be a standalone company. Uh, Marvel Comics was a standalone company. And a lot of times the people that would be elevated to the heads of these companies would be creative. So like Stan Lee was like the editor-in-chief and a publisher. And, you know, he was in charge of the business, but he also knew the creative and and, and, and so forth. Now we have all these things swaddled up by bigger fish, which is swallowed up by a bigger fish, which is swallowed up by a whale. So now AT, now you have something called some behemoth called AT&T Time Warner, this kind of big thing that is a cable company slash internet, internet company, which is not even, uh, it, exist anymore aol is gone slash um time warner which is an entertainment conglomerate that has um about 100 record labels um a bunch of movie studios and a bunch of um whatever so you have one person on top of that some some japanese guy who went to business school he doesn't know anything about any of this stuff he doesn't know you can't you can't know all that stuff you can't know all this stuff under you the way stanley knew comic books or the way you know Clive Davis might have known music or the way um, Harry Cohen might have known um, movies over at Columbia. You just can't. All you, you, you just all you know is business. And then all you can do is just try to hope you can hire someone who can explain to you what you own. You know, like, like someone has to come in and explain to you what you own. Like, um, OK, how's the movie? How's the movie stuff doing? Uh, what's going on? Is it making money? Uh, can somebody explain um, who's hot? In, who's hot in movies right now? Uh, what, J.J. Uh, J. Abrams? Okay, can we get him to save the Justice League? No? Um, okay, well, who's next on the list? Who, who made the most money? No one understands what they even own. I think academia is becoming like that, where NYU is not really a school. NYU is a, a, a real estate group. The uh, the same way that Marvel Comics now is just a department of Disney, it doesn't have to be profitable or, you know, you could treat it like a lost leader, like just lose money on these comics because they give us good movies. And the movies will make the money and put a middle manager in charge of Marvel who doesn't even, who never even worked in comics, transfer him from the game, from the game department. Um, put the guy in the game department, in the record, in the record department, you know, um, all he knows is management. He has no connection to anything. I think academia is becoming that where it's, 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 it's sure. just a big, academia has like six different wings now, you know, um, and the school is just one of them and they're as corporate as, as anything. So they're in the same boat. They, they're, yeah, they're yeah, big they're, they're big they're they big business, are. and when they hire, um, if you're big business, now you're bottom line driven. When you're bringing in talent, you're not bringing in talent because they do great work. You bring in talent because, okay, I I have the school. I need to have some something that's gonna bring in eyeballs. Uh, we gotta make the numbers. Who's this person has a lot of social media followers? Um, yes, this is how decisions have been yep. made in publishing too. You have a built-in audience. Yeah, yeah and it's sure. it's all the same. Absolutely thing. true. 
Let me, let, let me tell you an anecdote. There was a professor who wanted to co-teach a class with me. He's white, psychology professor. It's an anti-racism class. I said, you know, I'm interested. We met and he suggested a book, a book of essays by a, a recent black writer. Now, I've read this writer's writing, man, because everybody was talking about this writer. And I don't think he's ever written a paragraph I could get through. This shit is just trash. And he said, I think we should teach this. This is a great example of, how, of the, the sort of shifting definition of what a public intellectual is and this black intellectual. I said, I won't teach a class with this. This undermines, I teach nonfiction classes and this undermines everything I teach. It's terrible writing, top to bottom. And he said, well, I mean, that's objective, you know, and uh, subjective and, and this and that. And I said, I, I, I cited four examples. I said, this essay, this essay, this essay, because I had to read it and see what it was about. And I said, all of these essays are embarrassing, and I can tell you why. And this is what the man says to me. He says, well, I had never actually read any of his writing. So I said, hold on. You were suggesting that we teach a book of essays, and you'd never read any of the writing. And what it betrays is what you're saying. It speaks to your point. That the point of recommending these black writers and intellectuals and bringing them in is to check a box off. It's not that you think that they've said something uh, that's critically interesting. They haven't probed the depths in any way, you know. It's that you don't give a fuck what any of these Negroes are saying. You just know this one's popular. And so it should satisfy enough people. And that's how you get these um, programmings at these really elite institutions where you go, you look at the program and and it's cliche. It's like this person who wrote the anti-racism book, this person who has a popular blog. It's like, these are not people who used to come into the academy. Yeah, but, but like, what the fuck is this bullshit? And I'm all for... Like, I understand, like, hey, the gatekeepers are problematic. They always have been. And certainly gatekeeping has often kept black people out of spaces that they need their voices to be heard in. But you can't completely deregulate that gatekeeping either. You can't just have anyone come in. You reinforce racist. You know what's so crazy about what you're saying? You know why I started laughing just now? You're the third, maybe the fourth guest in a row. Maybe there's one person that broke up the streak, but uh, that started the sentence the same way. Where like I'm not saying gatekeeping is good, but you know, like like uh, for some reason we've had a streak of people who have given the disclaimer before saying that you know maybe there was something good to gatekeeping, and and I it's funny because 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 I agree. Yeah. I was one of those people that was all about fuck gatekeepers, democratization of everything, and I am like now rethinking it, and I'm like we we may have gone too far in the opposite direction. You know, um, and in a way, it's kind of created like a new type of gatekeeper, like a gatekeeper of mediocrity, you know, where yeah. it's just a you let you let demagogues in and they empower other mediocre people. They replicate themselves. And, you know, that's what and, happens. And that led to one of the ironies of Jessica Krug is she actually wasn't even that mediocre. She actually was one of the better uh, <laughs> scholars. That's what kind of made the that's what kind of made the um, colorism thing so funny, because um, I showed you some tweets earlier when, when we were talking, prepping for the show, and I was talking about how mm-hmm. I had gotten into some problems with people over the colorism thing because I kept saying, let's not just glibly just accept the easy talking point, you know, because everyone was saying, oh, you know, this is an example of colorism and how black women aren't valued and whatever. I'm like, okay, you can't just do that. You got to make the case. I can rock with you. I can rock with, I'm open-minded. I can rock with you. I can rock with anything. If you just lay the case. Just say she was kept out because of colorism and here is the proof. Here's a dark-skinned person that wasn't hired for something because of her. Something she did that was mediocre and someone who was doing much better who um, wasn't mediocre and 
didn't get the same shine or anything but i i skimmed through some of her book and everything uh i was prepared to like laugh at it and i skimmed through it and i'm like oh this is actually not bad i think i might even read it i hate to say but it's it has some interesting stuff in it um and then some of the people making these complaints themselves were kind of like like me mediocre and i was like you have to give me um some proof that there was colorism at play or give me some proof that it's because uh black women aren't valued because when i looked at a lot of the people in her department, there were a lot of black women of all different um, hues. And what a bunch of people kept trying to say to me is, so you're saying colorism doesn't exist. So I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Colorism totally exists. I just want proof this is an example of it. But these easy, glib, um, popular talking point answers, like, for example, if this came out like three or four years ago, uh, they would have framed it as cultural appropriation because that was that was a topic. Yeah. So they would say, oh, this is an example of how white people feel entitled to black culture and culturally appropriate. And then that would have been the 1000 like uh, tweet, the definitive and the be all end all 1000 like tweet on the subject. And that kind of thinking though is content thinking. That's not work thinking. That's, that's not making a work. That's influencer thinking. What's going to get the most instant reaction? What's trendy? You know, that's how you get viral tweets. You look at what the last 10 things that, tweeted are that went popular and try to mimic that voice so it's your, your article totally yeah. goes, goes into that and i would like you to kind of uh get more into your article and like like the whole thesis of it as far as why you thought laura michelle jackson's um piece didn't kind of hold water when you examine it more yeah well you know again i would say like i'm perfectly willing to uh, to debunk and and call out people, but, um, you know, I respect Lauren Michelle Jackson. And she was writing for The New Yorker, and, you know, there are a lot of complications there in terms of audience, being on deadline, having to produce something as quickly as possible. Um, so I'm not going to just throw Lauren Michelle Agreed. Jackson under the bus. Um, the, the stuff with colorism is, look, like I said in the, in, in the piece I wrote, I thought that she touched on something very interesting early in that article as an anecdote, which was that battle between black Brits and, and black Americans uh, about Adele and whether she was, you know, uh, engaging in cultural appropriation, by, you know, with the with the Bantu Nada and, 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 the, and the Jamaican flag and all this bullshit. Right. I was reading those tweets and they were all fucking stupid. All of them. You know, these these people are idiots. And but the battle was incredible because the battle was for who gets to be the arbiter of blackness and some of the colorism stuff gets to that as well. You know, you can't just blindly claim colorism. It's colorism. It's color. There are a lot of dark-skinned people in the academy. You know, there, there are light-skinned people in the academy who don't know shit and dark-skinned people in the academy who don't know shit. I don't know, I don't know what to say about this, really. I've seen people four shades darker than me up there performing blackness that made me want to yeah, slap and, the shit and, out. And, there, and, there, and there's light-skinned <laughs> people who would not be able to get a job anywhere because they what they're saying is too is too real or too um um doesn't play doesn't play the game you know so black blackness can't yeah. be defined that way it's, it's very complicated it can be political it can be color um it can be experienced in, in, in america um you know obviously you see this politically like i think there was a recent piece in the new york times that wasn't great but there were some interesting points to it where you're saying you know the death of political blackness like everyone's black Kamala is black, Barack Obama is black, but they're black in very different ways. We pick and choose who we decide is black. And sometimes it's about, you know, political efficiency and sometimes it's about um, narrative and sometimes it's about skin color. But I, I don't know. I was lucky. I grew up in a family that was black, I suppose, in stereotypical ways. They're from Harlem and Brooklyn. 
uh, Linton Hauser Project's famous rapper, Cool Key from Ultramagnetic MC. Oh, wow. My cousin. My, we, were all, we were basketball players, boxers, and we lived in the fucking hood. I wasn't going to go to private school or college and have some suburban black dude who was dark tell me I wasn't black enough. I would have smacked the shit out of him. It just didn't happen to me. I don't, you know, the way I move, I think makes it clear where I'm from. Like, I don't, that is He can feel it off you too. (laughs) Well, yeah, you you can always feel it in these rooms. So I I always think it's projection when people start talking about colorism, because I think a lot of light-skinned people do feel inadequate in their blackness, especially if they haven't grown up around a lot of black people. You know, they used to be in the, the black student union and they were super militant and it seemed like compensation. And then there, of course, are people who are very dark who then realize that viscerally that white people respond to them um, and, and that white people give them a credibility that's unearned, that they look so black to them, that they must bow to whatever they say. I encountered a woman like that um, when I was, uh, you know, teaching and I believe she was a grad Just to student. clarify, are you saying that there's some dark skinned people yeah. who kind of realize that they can weaponize their darkness? Absolutely. And that's something you can't Absolutely. say nowadays. Oh, yeah, I guess not, <laughs> but I can. I can say whatever the fuck I want to say. And, and that's how, that, that's always been how I live. And it, of course, gets me in trouble. And it makes people uneasy. And I, I often hear from white and black people, well, you can say that, but I can't. Yeah, yeah. I can say, I'm going to fuck. I don't know what to tell you, but I don't like seeing people degrade the experience that I'm familiar with for the benefit of white attention. Because what you'll notice is that these rooms are almost all white. And I know black people of all shades who can't stop this discourse when they're around each other about how they don't like hanging with white people. They don't like white people. White people are the devil. They don't want the kids to play with white kids. They don't want to date outside the race. And they I've never seen people hate white people so much. I'm from the fucking hood and I have every reason to dislike and distrust white people. And I don't have the problems with them that these agreed people do. But then I noticed that they love being on a stage mm-hmm. in front of all these yeah, white yeah. people. <laughs> I don't like that. I, that's not my thing. That makes me uncomfortable. Like, why am I dancing for white people? All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Be good.